Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I am your host, Titus. Today I'm recording with my friend John Presnell about Brian De Palma. With sheer fascination for this somewhat reviled, somewhat neglected director, but a great American director, we've already covered Carlito's Way, an outstanding and thoughtful gangster movie. The dialogue there and the setting the scene seems to be more important than the shootouts and shows you the moral importance of those shootouts. Now we're doing something that's even more of a director's movie, even more of a movie watcher's movie, Buddy Double, his 1981 most shocking film, and also the movie that reflects most on his study of Hitchcock, the master of murder. John, hello, thank you for joining me again. Glad to go on with this series of the Palma movies. How are you doing? I'm doing very well, Titus. Thank you for having me. So I'm glad to be here to talk about Body Double. It was a flop at the box office. Most critics hated it. It was slammed for its misogyny and for its obsession with sex and its grotesque violence, which it does indeed have. But I guess part of thinking it, as you presented it, uh, a director himself meditating on his own artwork and his influences Hitchcock see several references to Rear Window, the viewing of a murder through a telescope in this case, Vertigo, the mistaken identity, but a trailing of a woman in distress that's brought upon by at least a friend of his, even a murder scene that references Dial M for murder. And everybody knows from De Palma's earliest movies, he liked to explore what he called the grammar of Hitchcock's way of making movies. And so we have a stylized meditation on that and on the nature of making movies themselves and its relationship to their audience. But then this raises moral issues as well. It's a deliberately shocking movie. This came after two movies, his previously Dressed to Kill and Scarface, which he had a hard time with the MPAA rating board where he had to edit and cut. And so he was exasperated and said, I'm just going to give you an X movie this time. But he ended up not making an X. He went ahead and edited this one down to give it an R rating. I think he's also throwing a lot of critics would criticize his borrowing or appropriation of Hitchcock as a simplistic, hey, isn't that a neat way to shoot a scene? He's trying to show them there's a lot more going on. The grammar or architecture of putting together a scene and then putting together an entire movie with characters, that raises a lot more issues than just what is pleasing to the eye. And in this case, it's a jarringness because it's pleasing to the eye, but it also appeals to a pornographic taste, as well as maybe I guess you could call it pornographic taste for violence. It's a problematic movie in that regard. I'm not sure it's a movie that is easy to come to love, but it's fascinating. I've watched it numerous times and I seem to pick up tiny details each time I look at it. Yep, it is incredibly rich and obviously made, as you suggest, for reviewings, which shows at least something about the art of De Palma. He can't have believed that this would be a success, but he still wanted to give his audience something intelligent and thoughtful. He's not just a hack. And I think you're definitely right about his relationship with his audience, with Hitchcock, and with his critics. Now, the critics seem like a moralistic child to me. They point out the obvious, which is always a good start, maybe the best start. Yes, it is rear window and virtual vertigo and some stuff from Dial M for murder. There's a lot of Hitchcock in there. But if you just think to yourself, okay, how could I put these three movies together? You'd find out it's super difficult. It's uh, it's just not easy to do. But moreover, the critics should then move on to step two and ask, why would somebody feel the need to do that? But of course, sarcastic people don't have it in them. It's our job actually to do that and to try to give our audience a sense of how thoughtful this is. So Hitchcock is the man who invented the respectability of murder and showed America that we'll 
love this. We gotta live up to the fact and to try to figure out why and what we get out of it. What is the moral importance of our desire to see sex and murder when in fact we live super peaceful, comfortable lives? That's right. None of us are gonna go through these events. We don't even know people who go through these events. These are not common events. They're shocking and in this movie outrageously shocking. Obviously cinematic, made up because we as an audience like to see that and we need to understand ourselves. In his interest in Hitchcock, Brian De Palma has far more respect for his audience than most directors or critics would because he says, okay, we really do love this. We've got to square with that. We shouldn't just lie by saying, oh yeah, Hitchcock was a master of fear. Oh yeah, he loved suspense. What are we afraid of is the question. Why is there suspense? That is to say, what do we want to see but can't admit that we want to see? What is it that we know is in ourselves but can't bring ourselves to face? But we can do that at the movies. That's right. So I think there is a good moral case to be made for De Palma, a doctor to America's imagination. And yeah, it's important, but, so of it's, course, yeah. to understand he didn't cause the 70s or the 80s to happen. <laughs> He's not responsible for the social problems or for what happens to the movies. He is, I think, in an American sense, doing an essentially conservative job, that is to say, trying to conserve America. This is who we are as we reveal ourselves to ourselves as an audience. We have got to square with it. Well, he's a character here who repeats a line from a movie that he's in, but he says, I like to watch. And of course, what we see throughout this film is him watching, viewing voyeuristically all kinds of things, which is obviously touching upon us and the audience's own desire to see sex and violence in the most outlandish and provocative fashion possible. And I think he's kind of shoveling it here, not to titillate, but to ask us to question ourselves as viewers, the whole nature of cinema and what is it that we're watching. Watching. And so we have to acknowledge that we like to watch these things, even if maybe it's hard to admit it. And it is easier to the argument from respectability. How could somebody have such grotesque murder scenes or deal with themes like the pornography industry, which just reduces sex to just body parts? But I don't think he's doing this for us to have some kind of stimulation in that way. He's causing us to think about the nature of our desires to want to watch these things. And also, he does it in a way that can give us some distance. So I, I would say that it's not easy to come to love this movie, but it proves to be endlessly fascinating because while he's dealing with the subject matter through film that we would rather not admit to ourselves that we like to watch, he's also providing us maybe subtle clues about our tastes and our desires that might be clouded over. Yeah, the American psyche is on show. And of course, every objection that can be made to Brian De Palma should be made even stronger to Hitchcock because Hitchcock was so much more successful and respected. But we don't do that. We say he was respectable. He made murder respectable. Any atrocity you see in his movies is now respectable. But we want to paper over it. Well, if we were angels or had become angels since the 60s, then this would no longer be a problem. You could just look down on people who have a prurient curiosity, let's say. But we're not angels and our world is not angelic. We just don't have anything as forthright and as thoughtful put together with deliberation as the Palma movies. So it's a good time to try to return and see what's going on here. My general suspicion, both on the podcast and elsewhere, I've done a lot of work on Hitchcock, is that what De Palma is doing trying to bring Hitchcock from the 50s into the 80s, with with all the changes in American society that have happened in that generation, is to try to show that Hitchcock was never that respectable, and he was always trying to warn people about the dangers of respectability. Believe in it too much, and you blind yourself to evil evil in yourself, even Mm -hmm. in people you like primarily. It's always easy to find evil in people you hate, especially when they're far away and they're not a bother to you. 
-hmm. It's always mm -hmm. hard to see any evil near about. Hitchcock tried to do that for America, and we can see, as with the Palma, with Hitchcock himself, his 40s movies don't feature shocking things like Psycho does. He mm -hmm. also felt through the course of his career that you had to get more shocking to attract attention to very real moral and social issues. And of course, you have to do it through a good story at the same time. So first of all, lead us through the story, John. Okay, so our protagonist is a man named Jake Scully, played by Craig Wasson. He's a underemployed actor. He's done some stage, some television. And as the movie begins, we find him cast as a vampire in a schlocky movie called Vampire's Kiss, not the one made by Nicolas Cage years later. And he gets fired from his job. Like a Hitchcock character, he has a debilitating problem, but this one is psychological, it's claustrophobia. And so when he has to do the scene as a vampire in the coffin underground, he freezes up and can't do it. And this leads him to lose his job. He shortly thereafter loses his girlfriend when he finds she's been sleeping with somebody else while he's at work. So he loses his apartment because it's his girlfriend's apartment. So he's lost his job, his girlfriend, his apartment in about a day. He goes to an acting class and he bumps into an acquaintance of his who says, hey, I've got a place for you to stay. It's this house up in Hollywood Hills. It actually is something known as the Chemisphere, which is a John Lautner house, 1960s sci-fi panopticon of UFO flying in space. It's a bizarre looking house. You can look it up. And the guy, Sam, says, look, I have to go out of town. I'm house sitting for somebody else. Why don't you house sit here? He says, this is great. It's awesome. He's got everything you could want in this place, and he needs a place anyway. And his friend tells him, hey, take a look through the telescope here. And sure enough, lo and behold, on the other side of the, the hills is a large mansion with a woman who's dancing naked and pleasuring herself. And we're told that she does this every night. The other guy takes off and our hero watches through the telescope for this woman pleasuring herself every night and he is titillated. So here we see that we're in a way placed in Jake's view looking at through the telescope and he sees that she's being followed by a sinister looking person who goes by the Indian and he sees her being beaten by her husband. She's lonely. She is unsatisfied. So he begins to follow her and he follows her to a mall where he overhears a conversation that she's going to meet with somebody she's having an affair with. He follows her to the most tell. This Indian character follows as well. He steals her purse. Our hero, Jake, grabs the purse. He makes out with her in a very passionate scene, but nothing happens. So later on that night, he gets home. He looks through the telescope and he sees the Indian in there and he witnesses her about to be murdered. He runs over there to save her, but he's too late in a very famous scene where she's murdered by a large drill. So the second half of the movie then is First, he's just kind of down on his luck, but he realizes that he's been had. The woman he saw dancing was not the woman that he thought she was. Instead, she was a pornography actress who was hired to do this dance. So he poses as a wannabe pornography actor and director in order to meet this actress to find out what happened. History unravels that the woman who he saw murdered, uh, her husband was actually the guy Sam, who had brought him to the chemosphere, who actually is the Indian. And it all comes down to a head at a reservoir. Finally, our hero gets up the gumption to act and save the porno actress from being killed by the Indian or Sam or the husband, whatever we want to call him. Then the movie ends with him saving the character Holly Body as the porno actress's name, played by Melanie Griffith, with quite an annoying voice. Then the movie ends on the scene of the vampire movie. He's got his job back and he's now doing a scene in a shower where he's playing the vampire. There's a lot of details I left out, but basically we have a setup where he's to witness a murder and not realize what's going on but he doesn't play the role perfectly because he goes to see what's really going on and he uncovers his so-called friend who had set him up to be the witness to a murder so that he could get away with murdering his wife. 
we see a vertigo element there, and then the voyeurism through telescope, a rear window thing going on. Yep, and the first thing I think to notice through the plot is the director's relationship to his audience. There is, as you pointed out, a director character in the movie. The husband who's a murderer who play acts as a friend to our protagonist, who play acts as an Indian murderer of this woman, and who's set everything up. He counts on his audience, this loser, Jake Scully wannabe actor, being passive and complicit in his passivity, offering the evidence that will completely clear him. He's set up a patsy and he's sure that it's going to work out because audiences are just so taken in by their own passions, by their own titillation, that they can't get up and do something. But the Palma wants the audience to be like this guy, Jake Scully, to learn, to figure out that you've been had and that you shouldn't be had at the movies. That you should be using your brains, not just your jaw dropping. This, I think, shows the importance of a good plot. If you see mm-hmm. where the character starts and where he ends, you can begin to see what the director expects of you. These are the things you have to put together. And in this case, he wants to show you what does it mean for an audience to identify with, to relate to a protagonist. Not just that he's a likable blonde guy, handsome, tanned in Hollywood. It's that he learns some gumption. He's unrelatable at the beginning. He's a complete loser. He can't handle a simple scene in a coffin. You know, all this time, his girlfriend that he thought he was very secure with, where they live in her apartment, apparently. So when he finds her in bed, he has no place to stay because it wasn't his apartment anyway. But he had this neon sign that says something like, Jake Hart's Carol. And they seem to have this nice, respectable, but unmarried state. And that turns out to be a sham. And he goes to a method acting class. After all, he's out of work, so he might as well do some study and see if he can make some connections for another job. We do see him look through the one ads. He does a method acting situational thing where he's supposed to get relaxed and think about a childhood scene that he remembers playing sardines in a can with his brothers and hiding behind a refrigerator somewhere and getting trapped. And here's where we begin to see, aha, the coffin scene is connected to an early childhood trauma of his brothers laughing at him for being a scared little baby trapped behind a refrigerator playing sardines in a can. And in this scene, he just can't hack it. He breaks down crying. And so he's just really not a likable character at all. Just a loser. That's true. The movie starts with a couple of fakes about genre. First, you see this vampire movie that turns out just to be something people are shooting on a set somewhere. It's mm-hmm. just a work-a-day thing. You don't like this protagonist, just fire him, get another. Everything is throwaway and interchangeable mm-hmm. here. That's not the movie you'll watch. Then it does look like this guy is getting groceries or something and is going to go to his girlfriend and you see this family life in Southern California, God's on Paradise, a long shot tracking onto the house, panning there to show you this is home. And then that turns out to be another fake. And you see that this guy does have to lose his illusions very fast. And as you say, he's not a likable guy. Also, he's a former drunk, rehabilitated, which is the only sign we really have that there's some will and sense of what to do with his life there. He was once a drunk, but he got out of that. He's relapsing now. There's a question. Will he get out of it or will he be a complete loser? And as you mentioned, he is trying to get back on the horse, to look through the ads, show up to casting calls, try to get audition, and keeping up with his acting class. There's some kind of self-respect from his craft. And this question about the craft, however ashamed he is in other occasions, like auditions, casting calls, that he doesn't really have a career behind him. He's a nobody, has done almost nothing. His craft does show this existential question. There are 
two men there who direct him. One of them is the guy who runs the workshop, who's the teacher, and who, seeing him break down, tells him to snap out of it and uh, get the thing done. Master your craft. Then mm-hmm. that seems to be a form of self-understanding. Mm-hmm. Don't feel sorry for yourself. Get through it and figure out what the hell has happened here so that you can move on. Whereas That's, the other just, guy who turns out to be evil, he says, no, mm-hmm. no, I'll comfort you. I will soothe you. That's I'll, right. I'll give you what you want. And that, again, is a remark about what kind of movies there are out there. The kind of movies that will soothe you, give you what you want, and movies that disturb you to force you to confront something. That's, that's very good. The acting class has some interesting details. So we have instructions written on a chalkboard. Part of the exercise is first it says feel, then it says personalize, and then it says act. So I guess first he's got to feel fear. He personalizes it with his memory of the sardines in a can, but because it's so traumatic, he can't act. That's when the other director, as it were, this guy Sam, who's going to set him up, jumps in and seemingly to save the day, stop humiliating my friend. We have another one of these neon signs on the wall for the acting class, and it says actors get paid in advance. And Jake, he's a sucker. He does not get paid in advance. So what Sam is going to offer him is maybe a more pleasing image that can maybe satisfy him quickly or immediately in his down moment, but it's not going to allow him to confront what he needs to confront so that he can act, both as a get a job acting and just be a human being, be a man. Yep, and this is where we begin to see that the whole movie is about the double meaning of acting. In one sense, acting is specifically just what actors do in a play or a movie. But in another sense, action is what we always do as human beings. Our speeches are actions, our deeds are actions too. And so the question is how movies reflect our humanity as such. One specific part of our actions, the movies, reflects the whole of who we are. And we always try to make sense of a movie, to recognize the places and the people and what they do and how things turn out. To say that, okay, this is an image of our world and it should more or less make sense at least as much as our world does. As you point out, this is a three-step process. You have to feel, personalize, and act. To feel something means that the world makes an impression on you at some level. To personalize, however, means to make it your problem. To figure out, what is this to me? Mm -hmm. And then you have to do something about it. Mm -hmm. And this guy cannot, and this shows that in all the kitsch and the loser life he lives, there's something existentially important there. He immediately thinks of his fear as a child, and that turns out by the luck introduced by the director into the script to rhyme, to chime with the scene where he is claustrophobically impotent in his role as a vampire. Now, whatever you may think of a vampire, a vampire is a winner, not a loser, and not impotent. (laughs) But he is. All of a sudden you see that if you think about this a bit seriously like we do about movies, this is a guy in a grave. Yes. His fear turns out to be claustrophobia, one part of which means, yeah, that you're afraid of confined spaces because you're afraid for your life. It's a way of confronting death. And the other thing, of course, is that he's afraid that the brothers with whom he was playing would forget about him, that he'd hide so well that he'd be forgotten. It's Mm -hmm. anonymity, it's being a loser that he's afraid of. These first two sequences set that up very, very well. Yeah, his fear of being forgotten and unknown, it's connected to the choice of his career. 
He has experience doing Shakespeare, we're told. And even when he's looking at one ad, he circles a New Orleans Shakespeare festival. So there's a certain degree of respectability, but he chooses instead to do television, a vampire B movie, which he kind of shrugs off, but perhaps he's hoping that would be a stepping stone. He wants a certain degree of celebrity. Of course, he has no idea how to achieve it, and he just wants it to come easy for him. He definitely fears being forgotten and thrown back on his own where he only has himself, which is in a way what happens to him. Yep, and especially in our times, of course, it's immediately, glaringly, blaringly obvious that this is a story about how Hollywood chews you up and spits you out. You have to go there with certain dreams, with certain ideas of what, how it could go great for you, how you could be just like the celebrities, how other people could love you like they love the celebrities. Why do people love these celebrities and not me? Why can't I have anybody say that I matter to them? But everybody thinks that this such and such person who's just a phantom online or in the papers, on TV, on a screen, is more important than living beings. You can see where people get the idea that it's better to be a celebrity, a shadow of a man, than a real man. Mm -hmm. And this guy is now experiencing the spitting out part of Hollywood chewing you up and spitting you out. This moment when he could be confronting this, he lets himself be deluded, being offered this great opportunity. Here, I'll tide you over for a while. You'll have this little paradise of luxury over here. Here, it's stuffed with pleasures that aren't really real and aren't really all that morally sound. And, and of course, he jumps at it. He's got nothing left. Somebody's giving him something. And nobody's given him something. People have betrayed him and used him up to this point. And he's just not smart enough to suspect this guy too. But That's on right. the other hand, it shows his humanity. He's not so bitter to think that he's been chewed up and spit out and nobody could treat him well. So that's the paradox there. If this guy smartened up, you wouldn't have a story. But if he smartened up, he wouldn't in a sense be of human interest because he'd have become too bitter because of the way he'd been treated. There's this strange combination of a morally indefensible prurience in the man and an endearing human desire to have some friend somewhere, to have somebody treat you well. Yeah, well, you know, the literal object of his viewing through the telescope, Gloria Ravel, she is lonely, abused. We hear phone calls. She's looking to be with someone else to make some kind of a connection. And that, I think, he identifies with. He immediately identifies with the dance through the telescope. I guess that brings a sexual arousal in him, a kind of eros that gets personalized when he begins to follow her more. So we get that feel personalized kind of movement there. And now we find out her great dissatisfaction despite her wealth and her loneliness. And he relates to that. And maybe he thinks this is somebody that he could have a deeper connection with, except it's hard to imagine an attractive woman like Gloria finding him in any way fascinating, given he's homeless, he's unemployed, he doesn't have any money. Yep. You see again this paradox on the one hand, who, who could ever bother with this guy? He's nothing. But on the other hand, he's attracted by beautiful beings, like he was attracted by celebrities, attracted by this beautiful woman, because he thinks there must be something good there. The movies always stand for that. If, as a society, we decided that the good and the beautiful had nothing in common, in a sense, we would never be duped, we wouldn't be worshipping celebrities. But on the other hand, it would have bad things to do with our lives. Uh, it, and what the movie is trying to say, it seems, by this continuous shifts, he sees this woman and he's erotically attracted to her, but throughout the movie, it turns out that this erotic attraction has both a moral and an intellectual content moral for him as an actor, and intellectual for us as an audience as we see him change. 
Mm-hmm. Now, this partly suggests that good things and a manly desire to protect, to save, a capacity for action could come out of bad things, like being a pipping tom or a perv. Mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. this is the true reason why critics especially, but to an extent audiences, don't like the Palma. He doesn't share moralism and class contempt. In fact, there are sequences late in the movie where actresses and porn actresses are compared. Now, outside of a very contemptuous, say, very conservative Christian attitude, we wouldn't say that all celebrities are doing porn. But there's more than a little truth to it, especially in our age of TV and movies. Sure. And uh, the director doesn't say that these people are radically different. He doesn't say that the ones are respectable and the other ones are scum. It's uncomfortable in a certain way. Certainly actors, but also the people who love celebrities. They don't want to think of that as porn. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. In America, porn is legal, but nobody does it in public. Everybody's ashamed of it. That's right. (laughs) That barrier is part of what he's trying to look at, and people don't necessarily want to follow along. People might not want to admit about themselves that some lady they fell in love with and married and lived a good life with, that maybe the attraction started in a way that's not so beautiful and something you'd confess publicly. Whereas here you're forced to confront it in the span of two hours and change, so it's a bit uncomfortable. I've seen this movie alone. I've seen it in company. I was embarrassed when I saw it in company. Of course. That's the natural reaction. And yeah, you learn something about yourself. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, so with the murder, which is the middle of the action or the plot, and so Jake is there and the police are investigating him and there's a detective, McLean, very well played by, I don't know the actor's name, but it turns into a television crime drama. And, and it's in the scene where Jake's voyeurism comes to light because as he's been following this woman... First, he's looking at her at a telescope, and then he follows her to the mall, and he follows her to an exclusive lingerie store where she's changing her underwear, and she leaves her underwear in a garbage can, and Jake grabs it, the used underwear, the old underwear, and puts it into his pocket. And it just so happens he has that underwear in his jacket pocket when the police are interrogating him, and and he sees it, and he pulls it out, and he says, what is this? And we get the story. And Jake's chasing after the woman to get to know her better, and maybe they have some kind of connection. And also, he thinks he can maybe save her or protect her from this Indian character, which he's not able to do. And the detective tells him, I think you're responsible for this crime, Jake. You know, if you hadn't been so obsessed with grabbing her underpants, then you could have done something something perhaps you could have really taken some action that could have prevented this murder and so that development then is when he realizes he has to act in a different way he was playing the role that his friend sam who actually had set him up wanted him to play except he went too far by getting involved with the woman sam anticipated him just to watch from a distance so sam misreads jake in this way Jake gets involved. This goes against Sam's plans, but it's still this very distasteful motivation. And somehow he has to realize that acting is is going to have to be in a different type of a role in order to feel personalized and act. Take some kind of responsibility for his own life, which up to this point he has not been quite able to do. Yep, this is part of the genius of the Palma. Now, in a Hitchcock movie, if halfway through somebody realizes, okay, there's a problem, in the next half he'll be trying to solve it, and he can usually come to grips with it by talking to somebody he knows and trusts and loves, and there's some relief that you're not alone in this and you shouldn't be so ashamed of yourself. This is the exact opposite. When once, as you say, because of the cops, he realizes in what sense he had been a loser. 
he hadn't played detective. And again, this is an indication to the audience. The way you should watch a movie is playing detective. You're supposed mm -hmm. to figure something out. So also now he realizes that things get uglier and uglier. This isn't a process of sanctification and redemption. Mm -hmm. He doesn't get recognition and uh, <laughs> public heroism for a happy end. But he does get to understand himself better and to do good things for other people and remove this shame of being a patsy to a crime. Be his own man again by not being somebody else's patsy. And this is something that you learn from Hitchcock movies. Say, Dalem for Murder, the murder scene with the telephone from which is replayed here. There is a man who orchestrates, directs, sets up a murder, and he does it because he has contempt for people. And the way the British cop stops this upper-class British criminal has to do with his sense of being his own man, of his dignity. He does not want to be exploited by somebody. He doesn't want to be a patsy in somebody else's scheme. So also with this American guy, he plays out a class conflict. He's a nobody loser. The other guy is handsomer, more successful, more assured. And it also turns out he's about to become massively wealthy. Mm -hmm. And exploiting him to get away with a crime because he thinks you're a loser. You're worth nothing. I'll use you. He mm -hmm. learns that he is worth something by standing against this. By refusing to be exploited. By becoming his own man. Speaking about the passive watching of movies. Jay, he doesn't just watch through the telescope. He wants to break that wall between the woman and himself, in part protecting her from this dangerous-looking Indian. And in the second half, when he realizes that the cop has called him out and has brought to daylight his really low tastes and his inability to do anything to save this woman, he does fall into a brief pit of despair where he just drinks himself to sleep and watches videos on TV and he watches pornography. And watching a trailer of a porno movie, Holly Body Does Hollywood, he sees the dance and he makes the connection and he realizes, wait, I've seen this dance before. So he never is just simply a passive viewer. Mm -hmm. I think so that's entirely when... true. Yeah. I would and... add another detail that I think speaks to why De Palma is important as an American movie maker. The guy makes his connection, wises up, gets a clue so he can act on it at his lowest now, to an extent that psychologically his self-contempt, the cop tells him you're just a perv, you're impotent, you couldn't do nothing about it, and so he enacts that. He drinks himself to a stupor and watches a porn movie. That is him at his lowest. But in another sense, it's supposed to mean something else, and uh, this is what I was getting at when I said that the second uh, part of the movie is way more immoral. That's the pornography world part of the movie. The first part is Hollywood, the second part is, you could say, the ugly truth about Hollywood. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm not going to say that the ugly truth about Hollywood is the whole truth about Hollywood, but it's an important part. Mm -hmm. And now, of course, it's coming out in the press and everybody's acting shocked and every corporation and every reputation is trying to mm -hmm. pretend we never knew that there was evil and from tomorrow on there will never be evil again. <laughs> because we're all respectable and our audience and consumers want us respectable, so we'll lie to them and they'll swallow it. Maybe they won't. Maybe like the character in the movie, they'll wise up and realize that this shouldn't fly. They shouldn't be exploited this way. So this guy at his lowest, he also learns from the lowest. His learning is shameless. He's looking at a porn movie when he gets a clue. The reason he hadn't before got a clue is because he wanted to believe too much in respectability. A guy you don't really know very well offers you the best thing in the world. It's too good to believe in, but you believe it in, in it anyway. 
It's so beautiful, you have to believe it's good. No, yeah. it's, you shouldn't. It's a trap. And now he learns that. And he, instead of looking to the beautiful, he begins to look to the good. And that's a very important transition that corresponds to the difference between the two different women. Two halves of the movie, two different women. Again, exactly like in Vertigo. But in Vertigo, they turn out to be played by the same woman. There are two different women played by one. Here he thinks it's one woman, but it's actually two played by two different right. women. And this is the change that allows Brian De Palma to bring the movie to a happy end, unlike Vertigo. Mm -hmm. And this ties up with the other thing I meant. These are both things typical of comedy. Learning from vulgar things, from the lowest, is what we do in comedies. Now, comedy we hold in contempt. It's something we laugh at. And therefore, we want to say that it's also contemptible. And so to give uh, Hollywood examples, being that this is such a Hollywood story, just think about, I've been recently writing about Jim Carrey, the great comic mm -hmm. talent of the 90s. He was never nominated for an Oscar. No, funniest guy in the world, but funny people are losers. Or mm -hmm. Cary Grant in his time, nominated for Oscars twice in very silly dramas. Everybody remembers him for his great comic acting. That never earned him even a nomination because people laughed at him. And so with any number of actors like that. I'm now writing on Eddie Murphy, great comic talent of the 80s. He got mm -hmm. one Oscar nomination for a pretty mediocre drama yes. role very late in his career. For sure. Mm -hmm. Because comedy is contemptible. But not mm -hmm. to De Palma. The comic mm -hmm. and the Palma, who doesn't make comedies, have certain things in common. They plot very carefully. Mm -hmm. Every accident has to be planned, and that means you put a prize on intellect, on mind, on paying attention, getting a clue, playing detective. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it... He wants a protagonist to be a little like him, an audience who is at least appreciative and goes along with that. And so our character, Jay, he is willing to make this descent into the world of pornography, except this time he's going to cast himself. And so he does an audition for a porno and he gets the role. And then later on, he presents himself as a producer, director of porno movies to cast the Holly Body actress so he can find out more about how she was hired or if she was hired to be this woman that led him to be the witness to the murder. And yet even there, when he descends to this low, he does it, it seems, without any qualms. In fact, he jumps into the role over heartedly, but he can't quite seem to do it in the which expectations of the pornographic world. So when he's cast in the movie, presented as a Frankie Goes to Hollywood video for the song Relax, and it gets to the <laughs> sex scene, right? And it gets to the sex scene, and he doesn't do what the directors expect him to do, go porno fashion. And we get this mirror reference. We see they're in a bathroom and they're having sex and the, the door to the bathroom swings open and we actually see the director filming us. So we have this self-conscious thing. But one of the assistant directors or something says, I thought we were filming, I forget the name of the movie, but instead we're filming Last Tango, a respectable pornography. And then when he's playing the producer and trying to cast Holly Body as she's telling him about all of her requirements that she does this, but won't do that. And he tells her he likes her smile. Part of he doesn't know what he's supposed to say, but I think that's what he wants to say. He does like her smile. And so he, there's still a kind of a likable quality to him. He hasn't just become kind of a cynical porno director. Yep. Um, he starts by wanting this woman's body, and her name turns out to be Holly Body, except, of course, that's not her real name. Right. It's just right. a name for what she does. And he, like everybody else who watches porn, sees that there's a body. But instead of that, he wants to talk to her and learn stuff. And he wants to make sure that she understands as well that he's not trying to exploit her, which also shows a sense of shame. Mm -hmm. And as you point out, he doesn't want to act out the cliches of a porn movie. His descent into vulgarity is partly natural because some things are by nature vulgar. We just don't do them in public. 
he does. And that shows it's also a bit of a descent into insanity, which is all true. And what he does is certainly risky and immoral. But at the same time, he doesn't lose his sense of shame or his purpose of finding out the truth about something that's a matter of justice. And moreover, he doesn't become a slave to these conventions. He doesn't want to be part of this world and play by the rules of porn. That's not what he aspires or what he enacts. Mm -hmm. That is a strange comic version of moral heroism. That he's down there in the mud, but he doesn't become the mud. Mm-hmm. Even when he's trying to sell Holly Body on his ideas of the movie, he takes her to some restaurant club. He's been in Hollywood, I guess, for a while. He's done some television and he's been in acting classes. And sure enough, he bumps into a female actress acquaintance of his. He doesn't take her to some hole in the wall dive bar where nobody would ever be so he could remain in hiding. Part of this is trying to sell Holly Body to go along with his film idea, but he's not able to sink solo. Yep, and uh, you see that uh, part of what's ridiculous about him and about the second part of the movie is that he's still trying to be a nice guy. He's still trying to play cowboy. He's still trying to be the good guy. The movie suggests that to an extent that's possible. That is what he should be doing. He should be trying to be the guy who saves the day and gets the girl. To what extent it can be done, that depends. But strangely enough, the movie is wholeheartedly behind that. All the criticism you see of passive viewers or of titillation or Hollywood hiding the ugly truth about itself behind its respectability and celebrity worship, that's all criticized. This thing? No. Here Mm -hmm. the director is with the guy. All right, go on. You can make it happen. (laughs) There is a certain turn from tragedy to comedy between the two halves of the movie. The first woman he just kisses in a very passionate, very cinematic scene where on the one (laughs) side there's a tunnel, on the other side the ocean and the beach and the camera spins around and filming 360 for a minute. And you see it's a bit of a vertigo. On the one side, there's the paradise is California. On the other side, there's the tunnel and the darkness, yes. the, the thing that scares him. And he's caught in between. And that's the cinematic truth about the beautiful, that it leads him to a catastrophe, actually. He worships the beauty of this woman and it ends very, very badly. The second, much more prosaic part of the film is also comical. In its vulgarity, it can comfortably focus on the good. Now he has a plan, he's getting it done. And it's true to him. He's a vulgar guy. He's never going to be that thoughtful or be a movie director or artsy. But he can do this good thing that he's trying to get done. And he should be trying to do it. it. Now it's possible to have a happy end. If, of course, a happy end with a different woman. That's right. It's just a rarity in De Palma films. And yet the happy ending is ambiguous. You know, so he takes Holly Body back to his chemosphere that he's house-sitting in. And it's there that he reveals to her why she's really there, that he had been watching her. She had been hired to do a dance to make him think that she was the woman that he was watching. But in fact, it was the other woman who was murdered. And all of this was this elaborate setup. And then, lo and behold, of course, while she's there, Sam, the guy who set him up, makes a phone call. Turns out he's been watching him from the house anyway. He gives her the phone and she says, yep, that's the guy who hired me. So he puts the pieces together, at least in part. He still doesn't know who the Indian is. But when he tells her what's going on, of course, she's understandably disturbed that he'd been peeping on her all along and that there was a murder involved as she just gets out of there. Of course, she's captured by the Indian and he's going to kill her and bury her in a hole. Jake chases after her, finds her with the Indian. He realizes the Indian is Sam slash Alexander all along, and he's able to take action. In his first attempt to save the life of the woman who died, Gloria, he's in part retarded by a white dog, and it brutally attacks him. 
And then here at the end of the movie, the same white dog, the husband's dog, attacks the husband who's killing him, and they fall into the reservoir. But of course, the woman wants nothing to do with him. While he saved her, it doesn't look like a happy ending. Until the bookend, where we're back on the set of Vampire's Kiss. Different scene. He's in the shower with a naked woman. And he's about to, as the vampire, bite into her neck with blood oozing everywhere. But there's Holly Body with him on the set, apparently now with him. So she somehow was able to turn from her fear of him or her disgust with him. And now she's his girlfriend. But it's an ambiguous happy ending because then we have this scene that bleeds over into the final credits where they bring in a literal body double to show the typical 80s breast shot, which was all over in 80s cinema. And of course, we see the blood oozing down over it as the screen credits roll by over this naked torso of a woman. But of course, this is fake cinematic blood as opposed to the earlier blood that we saw uh, Gloria dying with. And that's how the movie ends. It's not a happy ending. For De Palma, I suppose it's a happy ending. But. It's certainly nothing noble. This guy gets back to his hack job playing a vampire. This is still low prurient stuff. But now he does have a real girlfriend. They seem to know each other in a way that, of course, he didn't know anything about the woman he previously hooked up with and lived with who traduced him. And mm-hmm. that's a big difference. And they seem to a certain extent happy, even with the fact that they're doing this schlocky stuff. You get a sense that she is not doing porn anymore either because she's there mm-hmm. on the set with him. And that's certainly a step up. These are all improvements, but they're all very disappointing improvements. This, I think, is part of the moral realism of De Palma. There are certain important things that happen. Justice is done against every cop he meets. Justice is done, and he doesn't get rewarded for it, which is also, I think, morally realistic. He's sort of okay with being this vampire schlocky actor. He's got a girlfriend. He's not eager or or resentful about not being, say, on the cover of a magazine and on every TV for having solved this thing and becoming an instant celebrity. That's not what we get with this case. It's not sensationalized for a movie that's all about media. That part of the media is never shown at the end where you'd expect it. And just like it's important that the bad guy and his dog disappear, as you pointed out in the reservoir, all of that goes away. The bad guys get punished, the woman is saved. And his debilitating claustrophobia, he's able to overcome it somehow. Obviously, in that scene, it actually does have a flashback before he goes to attack the Indian. That's how he gets his job back. He can act. There's some reason to think that things are going to get better. He's certainly not a hero and celebrated. He's just another guy in a town where ugly things still happen. The world hasn't been transfigured by his moral heroism. Justice has been done, and he gets some good things. And that's maybe as much as you can hope for. Yeah, where could the movie go from there? I can't see at least the Palma for his concerns, trying to do a domestic drama. Doesn't think people change that much. However, he does have a heroic action under his belt now. He knows that he can take action. I mean, he's risking his life here and use violence against the Indian. Classic hero. Yep, that's the manliness that we want to live up to always, and he gets his chance to do it, and it's good that he ends up as he started, but in a better situation. That means that he can still be himself, and the intertwining of violence and eroticism throughout the movie suggests that, on the one hand, he wants good things. We see things that look beautiful, we want them. And on the other hand, we have to act to get them, and that sometimes does mean act against opposition, even when the world is or circumstances are unfavorable to deal with disappointment, with setbacks, with failures. So you get to the end 
given the brutal nature of the murder of Gloria Ravel, this obviously phallic symbolism and the drill pierces her body and comes bloodily through the ceiling. And moving on seems to be forgetting about her. Maybe the kind of beauty that she represents is something that Jake is going to have to forego. He wasn't able to save her. He is able to save Holly Body. There's something disproportionate in terms of the death of the murderer, Alexander Ravel, Sam Bouchard, and the brutal nature of her death, this woman who I think only has about three or four lines in the movie altogether. We just see her body walk through. Yeah, I see what you mean. As to the two different women, that is certainly the case. One of them is forgotten. Sam, the murderer, and his dog both disappear. And so you have the first half, the most beautiful thing disappears. And at the end of the second half, you have the ugliest, most scary, dangerous things disappear as well. Real blood, as you pointed out, is replaced by fake blood, which is excessively cinematic because it's the ending of the movie. It's the closing credits. Yes. You get substitutes, better in some ways and worse in others, and suggests a middling condition, that it won't be beautiful princess-like women, it won't, mm -hmm. on the other hand, be this evil, monstrous-looking guy, either. Think of the beach in front of the tunnel, and it was a nice juxtaposition you stated between the beautiful California sunshine and the beautiful woman next to this dark tunnel, the source of all of his anxieties and everything that prevents him from being a man and from just simply living. And then at the end, we have him on set, just like at the beginning. And then slowly we realize, well, there's behind the scenes. And so part of Hollywood is not the beautiful beach and the beautiful woman and the excessively romanticized kissing to strings and 360 photography, uh, but it's just behind the scenes, directors and boom men and sound men and lighting. Yet we have this stage presence here with this actor that maybe is the acknowledgement of the in-between, which can avoid the extremes of the image of beautiful California and the tunnel that is where he suffers from claustrophobia. Yep, the typical scene of the woman is that beautiful shot of her over against the sunshine, beach, ocean, paradisiac. And the typical shot of the antagonist is the one at the end when he dominates and he looks monstrous and then it turns out that his face comes apart. That's fake too. Mm -hmm. Just like the moment he has with that woman when it seems like paradise turns out to not lead to anything. The ugliest of the ugly and the most beautiful of the beautiful speaks with exaggerated enthusiasm and hysteria respectively that and this is not the only image of the middling condition. You pointed out when they're shooting the porn scene, which is not to him at least the porn scene, the guy says, I thought we were doing this lowest of the low, most vulgar of the vulgar porn. What are we doing here? The highest of the highest, the Bertolucci movie with Marlon Brando, Last <laughs> Tango in Paris? No, it's something middling. Yes. De Palma seems intent on that throughout. Yeah, the middling is literally, as you were stating, in part carrying Hitchcock into the 1980s. And so we literally find ourselves in the middle of a rock video. A rock video does play up earlier in the movie. That's one of the things that Jake is watching when he stumbles into his drunken stupor. There's something middling about the rock video, yep. of which the Palma only directed one, I believe. Bruce Springsteen's Dancing in the Dark, which is largely just Bruce Springsteen dancing on a stage with a girl. So there are two things going on through the movie. One of them is this double nature of the two different women. The double nature of acting. Is it just playing yeah. a role or are you supposed to do something as a human being? Is it real or not? Mm -hmm. Also has this other structure running through the movie of the middle condition between extremes. 
there would be even more to think about if we gave it another try maybe from this other angle because it's an incredibly deliberate movie and as you pointed out the only deliberate character in the movie is the bad guy yes we want to believe that the honest and the spontaneous are the only things we can trust the deliberate the deceptious we can't bring ourselves to trust when our protagonist brings holly body to his chemosphere She's offering herself to him. She's eager to make love, but he feels it would be exploitative. Mm -hmm. He deceived her for what he thinks of as a noble purpose. He doesn't want to use her. And so he wants to come clean and then she can't trust him anymore. That's right. But she does get in the car with the first stranger she meets. <laughs> that's true. I mean, and, that's and, just hilarious. And in a certain way, and, isn't that true? It, yeah, well, you know, that's the thing. And part of that is that she's strangely endearing or normal. People who live in the underworld of Hollywood don't think that they're Morlocks to the Eloy who live in Hollywood, right? Yes, right they, right. they still have to be people living people lives. It's mm -hmm. still America. I think so. She has her standards of even what she's willing to do on screen. And of course, those things are ridiculous as well. Yes. It is true to human nature that even people who stoop don't think of themselves as anything but people. And they of have course. to think of themselves as people to be people and to act like people. But getting in the car with the Indian, though, it's believable. Here she is. She's now stuck on the road. She's seen. She's also seen a car crash. I think that's in part what leads her to want to get in the car with the Indian. Some part is believable is a woman in hills in the Hollywood Hills and she's hitchhiking. What else can she do? That does lead her to the most dangerous situation she ends up in. Mm -hmm. And of course, had she just been a pro porn actress, this would have never happened. She wanted to get out of that condition. Yeah, and what a thing to get out of. Well, I guess when she's hired to do her dance, it's presented as some kind of joke that is going to be played on a friend of his. He likes to watch. She just thinks it's an inside joke being played on a friend of his for some kind of a gift for his birthday to watch a girl dancing. But that's something other than just simply performing sex on screen. And the one occasion where she truly is exploited is merely a body. Yeah. And she gets out of that too. For all that, I do think there's something a bit troubling in the conclusion. The blood is part of it. The other thing is your mention of the dog. In the middle of the movie, when the woman is murdered, there's this strange white wolf that mm -hmm. that stops him, that attacks our protagonist. And at the end, the wolf jumps at him again, but he gets out of the way at the right time. Yes. And then both wolf and master, the murderer, disappear. He's overcome something. Jake himself reveals the bad guy, that it's not some monstrous Indian evil guy. It's mm -hmm. this guy he thought he knew. Yeah, And that is exactly Hitchcock. There's a scene in the remake of The Man Who Knew Too Much with Jimmy Stewart. Yeah. And there's a guy being murdered in Marrakesh, North Africa, and he's there on vacation. And he's a doctor, so he wants to help the guy. When he puts his hands on the man's face, it turns out he's not black. It's paint. Mm -hmm. And when he takes off the paint, it turns out that he knows the guy. Yep. So you have this double recognition, unrecognition that the thing he thinks he's seeing, he's not really seeing. It seems familiar. Oh yeah, there's this guy, he's a local, he has the skin color. Turns out, no, that's not true. But on the other hand, what's really weird is not that there's a guy with this stuff on his face. The weird thing is that there's this guy you know who's pretending to be somebody else. Yeah. So you didn't really know him after all. Yeah, so also right. here, he reveals this monstrous-looking murderer who he thinks he doesn't know as the guy he thought he knew. And then he realized that the guy he thought he knew he didn't know. That's right. That's when he comes to his awareness of things. It's not that ugliness, the ugly mask, hid the truth. It's beauty, the handsome, successful guy. That's what hid the truth. 
The ugly lie was the ugly truth all along. And I think the Palma learned that from Hitchcock. That's part of it. The mastermind is revealed and overcome. But there's this other thing, the dog. That looks downright mythical. But he doesn't anticipate the dog. The first time around, when Gloria is killed, the dog pins him down and bites him on the neck like a vampire. At the end, of course, he, we know that he knows the dog is there. And when he sees the dog charge, as you said, he's able to get out of the way in time. Not only is the dog not getting his way, it's instrumental in saving him and the girl. So he doesn't end up a deliberative guy, but he does think fast enough. He thinks yeah. quick, he gets out of the way, and like the guy with masks stands for deliberation and planning that turns mm-hmm. out to be malvolent. The dog stands for ferocity. Yes. And you may be right that the guy plays a vampire, the dog there plays a werewolf. There is, I think, some psychological learning in those images. Whatever it is, the beast, the wolf, you have to come to acknowledge it because in part it's connected to your desire to see the most beautiful things and live in terms of those images. But doing that hampers you from doing what is good or just and for seeing reality as it is. And so somehow he's come to an awareness of this aspect of himself. Yeah. The dog is literally what prevents him from playing the hero he thinks he is. Mm -hmm. And the dog is literally the thing he hadn't seen coming. And it's just such a weird thing to see this white wolf in a luxurious house in the Hollywood Hills. That's not what happens. (laughs) It's it's, it's put there on purpose. And I think it's for this reason that there's this ferocity that is completely unpredicted. It's a complete shocker. You'd think Mm -hmm. the murder scene is shocking. Turns out, no, there's something way more surprising than that. That's right. And the setup of the murder scene is so over the top in terms of this Indian's ability to, he, first he strangles her with the telephone cord, then he chases after her with the drill, but the drill gets unplugged. And this is cut with Jake running towards the house, desperately trying to get there. Jake, when he realizes he can't get in the room, oh, he grabs a garbage can, throws it through the window. So he's willing to do whatever he can to get there. And De Palma, as the director, is willing to let this murder scene go on long enough to get in the time to get there. And yet it's the white wolf that prevents him. Yep, you're right that that murder scene is just a shocker and it keeps going on and it keeps going through these ridiculous things you'd expect in a Buster Keaton or Charlie Chaplin movie. Yeah. The drill gets unplugged. The guy falls yeah. and hurts himself. It's ridiculous and horrible. At the same time, at some level, it's unbelievable. That's an attempt to reproduce our experience. If something horrible happens at some level, you don't think it's really happening. You can't mm-hmm. believe your eyes. That's right. I believe that is the tagline on one of the versions of the movie posters. You can't believe what you see. Yep, and that's a double entendre. That's another doubling. Yes, yes, it is. It's advice. (laughs) Don't believe everything you see. But on the other hand, it's a statement of our humanity. When we're shocked by things, we really are shocked and the world doesn't make sense. We don't Mm -hmm. know what we're seeing. As in the phrase, what the hell was that? That's right. Exactly. That's incredible, yes. And so you you get to see there, and you're right that this guy is trying his hardest, jumping over fences, breaking through doors, and still there's something that stops him because he's not ready to be a hero. There's something he hasn't faced up to. This, again, is true to our experience, so that even if the plot isn't airtight, it is psychologically very astute. Everybody has some experience of what it means to go through a rage that debilitates you. There you see, you weren't in control trying to play hero, being sure that you were right and doing right as you thought you'd be. It can be an imprisoning experience, not just liberating. I think so. 
I think we're wrapping up here with this movie. I did not expect we would get into this last segment, but I hope we have shown that there's all sorts of quandaries of psychological character that you can relate to experience and see what Brian De Palma is cooking with. Mm -hmm. He's incredibly careful about all this stuff. Yeah, and I think if you go through it, then you begin to see a structure to this. You can start playing on this theme of you can't believe what you see and, and the double sense of what you've meant, both in terms of the movie itself and us watching the movie. But there are certain things that we just can't believe that we're watching. That's incredible. You hear that. We say that all the time. This is brought before our faces. And I hope that we've shown that Brian De Palma may look like something that you don't want to bother with, but actually it's uh, pretty great. Yeah, and thanks again for joining me, John. And we'll have to figure out what our next Brian De Palma discussion will be. And Sounds I'm sure good. We'll rehabilitate him after all. Okay. <laughs> Sounds good. Okay. Thanks for joining me. I'll talk to you again soon. Thank you. See you soon. Mm-hmm.